Time for Swordplay. Alex, Reverend Jonathan Barker of Grace Lutheran Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin, has pledged to not eat until Congress passes climate legislation or he reaches 6% body fat, whichever comes first. Do you have plans to join the Reverend by fasting for climate change legislation? Uh, Nick, why do these people hate Antarctica? Huh? You know, under the ice is a whole new continent waiting to be freed. I pledge to use styrofoam every day until we melt Antarctica and free the land from its icy prison. No longer should we be oppressors of Antarctica. Free Antarctica! <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> right. This is Swordplay, offering double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 John chapter 3. That's right, 1 John chapter 3, making our way through John's epistle. And this chapter is dense. It is packed with content. So, as always, we need to jump right in. Nick, verse 1, why does being a child of God make the world not know us? Yeah, yeah. Uh... See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so John says the reason why the world does not know us, didn't know him. And so first, I guess we need to talk about John's reference to the world here. As we've talked about, uh, that term, cosmos, has a lot of different uses, uh, wears a lot of different hats in Johannine literature. But John's reference to the world here may mean people generally, uh, uh because there are non-Christian people uh, who know us and perhaps even know we're Christians, that is, we're children of God, but they are not relationally connected to us. And that's part of the business here of no, they don't really have that relational connection um, in Christ. It's true, non-Christians certainly belong to the world and may comprise it in some sense, but it seems John here has in view the world system, which is openly hostile toward God, toward Christ, and therefore does not know the Father's children. Uh, in fact, there's, there's hatred from the world toward God's people, just as Christ predicted, John chapter 15 and verse 18. Uh, don't be surprised the world hates you, it hated me first. So the world does not know us because the world does not know God. And so uh, that that's a bit about why uh, a child of God, uh, being a child of God would make the world not know us. Uh, Alex, what say you? I think that's right. Uh, two key terms help us to interpret this passage. First, the world, which you described accurately as meaning in this verse, the world system. I would add that John still has in mind those who love the things of this world, mentioned in 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When a Christian comes along and says, don't love those things, those who love those things then feel personally attacked and then hate us for saying that the things they love are evil. The second key term is no. Uh, in our last episode, I gave the Old Testament background for why this term can be used to denote covenant. In John's opening prologue to his gospel, and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. The world did not know Yahweh God by covenant. Israel did, 
but some of his own did not receive him. But the door was opened to the world, so as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So now John says in his epistle that since we are children of God, in other words, we know him, we are in covenant with Yahweh God. Those who did not receive God then do not know us. They're not in covenant with us. They're not in the new humanity of the new creation. So John links together multiple times our covenant with each other and our covenant with God. They are inseparable. You either have both or neither. Thus, the world does not know the children of God because they do not know God. Now, in verse 2, Nick, what does John mean by it has not appeared as yet what we will be? Yeah, this harkens back to 2 verse 28, and we talked there about uh, when he appears at his coming. Uh, These are references to the coming of Christ, uh, when he appears at his final coming. And so when John talks here about uh, what we will be has not yet appeared, uh, he's talking about that future state for us. That is unknown to us. It, It simply hasn't been manifested, even as Christ has not yet been manifested with his final coming. What the resurrection body will be like, what heaven will be like, what being in glorified bodies with no more... Uh, sin, sorrow, or sickness to beset us. We simply don't know that yet. And that seems to be what John has in mind here. That's what I see. Alex, what do you think? I think that's right. And the emphasis here seems to be the resurrection body. What we will be describes a difference between what we are now and what will change at the resurrection. John says we are currently children of God. That's present tense, so that will not change. We'll still be children of God in the resurrection, but when we look at our physical appearance, you know, humans in general, they look the same. But John will speak in a moment about recognizing then the children of God and the children of the devil, not by their appearance, but by their practice. But will there be a recognition of the children of God by virtue of their new bodies in the resurrection? I would say so. Romans chapter 8 verse 19 says, For the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's a resurrection passage, by the way. Just as the incarnation wrapped up the glory of God in human flesh, so too now are all the children of God still wrapped up in human flesh. What our human eyes saw in Jesus Christ while in the flesh will be supplemented on that day with the new humanity. Uh, When we see with new eyes the full glory of our Lord because we will have been made like him. That's the completion of our theosis. You want more on theosis? Go see the archives, uh, season three. Now, verse three, Nick, how does our hope result in purifying ourselves? Yeah, this is where the tenses of verbs that John uses is significant. And this is going to be something that we're going to keep circling back to again and again throughout this section. Literally, he writes uh, that this person keeps on purifying him or herself. And such purity being modeled is patterned after the model of Christ. So uh, that's uh, one aspect of this. He uh, purifies himself as he is pure, and that's a reference to Christ. The hope, then, is the hope of being like him. Hence, verse 2, we shall be like him, like the one who will appear, that is Christ. 
So the future hope of being like Christ serves as motivation for pursuing moral purity in the present. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 1, about how Paul writes there, how we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Uh, so uh, that's a bit about what I see here about hope. Alex, what do you think? I think the hope here is also to see him just as he is, that is Christ, in his truest form. In the Old Covenant, uh, when a worshiper of Yahweh was coming to approach the presence of God at the temple, usually during a time of a major festival, uh, the worshiper would first ritually purify himself before participating in the sacrifices and the offerings. He had to prepare his body to enter into sacred space. Uh, sort of like a spiritual detoxification process. So John mentions this uh, happening as well in his gospel, John 11, verse 55. And since we will one day come into the physical presence of God at his appearing to see him as he truly is, John doesn't want us to shrink away in shame at that moment, as he said in verse 28 of chapter 2. Instead, John wants us to purify ourselves, to prepare ourselves for that moment, for entering into God's holy presence. And this preparation, I believe, refers to our sanctification, which Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue that sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. John says um, this to describe what happens when we walk in the light. Our practice, our walk, our continued loyalty, these prepare us to see our Lord and enter into his holy presence. Now, in verse uh, 4 and verse uh, 7 through 10, we have this repeated phrase of practicing sin or practicing righteousness. What does it mean, Nick, to practice then sin or righteousness? Yeah, so so practice is the, the word that is used here to translate the term uh, poion, which is typically translated do. In fact, this is a, a present participle, and therefore it could be translated the one practicing or the one doing sin or righteousness. And recall that when we covered chapter 1 of First John, there it was emphasized that truth is something which is to be done as well. So the present participle, as it's used here, indicates that this is the willful, habitual practice, the, the career, the regular business of an individual, either in regards to sin or to righteousness. It's similar to the term walk, which we discussed back in chapter one as well. It has to do with living and lifestyle. So the contrast is between the one living a lifestyle in rebellion to God, that is sin, or the one living a lifestyle in obedience to God, and that would be righteousness. So that's what I see about practice here. Alex, what do you think? I think that's exactly right. I like the words you used to describe the intention. It's willful. It's habitual practice. Uh, it's also, I would say, loyalty and commitment, which sounds spooky when applied to uh, walking in the darkness, right? Someone who's loyal and committed to walking in the darkness. Yikes. Uh, it is ultimately, though, in either case, it is one's true beliefs, either as they walk in the dark or walk in the light. Verse 4, Nick, uh, why does John need to emphasize that sin is lawlessness? Yeah, lawlessness here uh, translates the term uh, anomia, or anomion. Uh, and you break that word down, namos means uh, law, with the prefix of negation there, ah, and so thereby you end up with without law. 
this is the outlaw. This is the one that uh, seeks to live life uh, without God's law. And so it is the uh, it, it belongs to abandoning God's rule or the rejection of His law. And a closer reading reveals that sin here has a definite character to it. It is the, literally, John writes, the one doing the sin. The sin is lo- the lawlessness. And contextually, it may be that John has a specific sin in mind that the heretics are known for, perhaps the rejection and denial of the Father and the Son. Right? We, we talked about that at the end of chapter 2. So th- right. that, that kind of devilish behavior would reveal lineage, in this case, of the devil, uh, as John will talk about in verse 8. The devil is the original outlaw. Sinning from the beginning is what John says there. So that's a bit about what I see about sin and lawlessness. Alex, what say you? I am reminded of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 7, verse 23 of Matthew's gospel, when he says, I will declare to them, he's speaking to false teachers, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus knows of false teachers, right? But he does not know them through covenant. Uh, Their practice of lawlessness revealed uh, they had another covenant. They had a covenant of darkness where they walk in darkness. And though it's hard to say for sure why John even needs to say that sin is lawlessness, to my mind just seems synonymous, I would agree that it's probably in response to whatever the false teachers are saying. If these false teachers are appealing to another law or teaching, you know, one that they are the supreme holders of, they are the elite of, and through their own system they can now justify immoral behavior, well, then John's emphasis perhaps makes more sense. You can even imagine these false teachers twisting things that the Apostle Paul writes, uh, like in Romans 4.15, which says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law... There also is no violation. Aha, the false teachers could say, so since we have no law, we have no sin. Well, many people would twist Paul's writings to their own destruction like that. Peter mentions that in um, First Peter or Second Peter 3. Now, these false teachers, they were acting then autonomous. That's auto means self. Nomos means law. They were a law unto themselves. John will say plain and clear, sin is lawlessness. You can sin Without the law, the law of God simply holds up a mirror for one to see how utterly sinful sin really is. That's Romans 7.13, right? Uh, Go on, finish reading the rest of Romans. That'll help you false teachers to uh, see where you're wrong. These false teachers, they were holding up not the mirror of God's law, but a mirror of their own creation, one that would augment reality into a virtual lie. So bad stuff going on in the background. Verses 6 and 9, Nick, is it possible for Christians never to sin? Is that what John is teaching here, that Christians never sin? Right. On the on the last episode, we discussed the possibility of perfectionism. Is it possible not to sin? So, you know, maybe uh, maybe we were wrong. I mean, obviously, right? Our, our conclusions are in error because John is clearly teaching that Christians sinneth not. Um, and that's how the old King James has it. So I mentioned that just to show this is not a, a, a new uh, thing. This is an old understanding that a lot of people have had. Someone might say, see, Christians are not to sin. Sinneth not, yes? And it, it is true that we are to work towards sinning less and less. But to claim that Christians can achieve absolute sinlessness, 
uh, sinless perfection in this life that simply is not substantiated by Scripture. In fact, impeccability is an attribute that is reserved exclusively for God and for Christ. This faulty understanding is actually based on a misunderstanding of what the text says. Sinneth not is misunderstood to mean does not sin, when in fact the King James translators had no intention of communicating such a thing. The F on the end of words, a lot of people don't know this, but the F denotes the present tense. That's why they translated it that way. Uh, and so, since most folks don't know that, it leads to this misunderstanding of what John is communicating. Uh, however, newer translations, maybe that'll help, right? Well, eh, not so much. Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. Uh, for example, the New American Standard Bible reads that uh, no one abides in him sins, with other versions reading, does not sin. Uh, and that's the New English uh, translation as well as the Holman Christian, which is now just the Christian Standard Bible. And while these may be faithful translations of the Greek, they only breed confusion. So clarity is sacrificed for accuracy. So other newer translations seek to capture the sense of what John wrote by translating the present tense, keeps on sinning. And that translates the present tense clearly and in agreement with the one sinning, which is the present participle at the end of the sentence there um, in, in verse 6. And uh, so uh, this parallels the thought in verse 9 as well, which talks about a practice of sinning. Uh, so verse 9 is especially fraught with misunderstanding, since most English versions read that the one born of God, with God's seed in him, cannot sin. However, once again, the English standard comes to the rescue with cannot keep on sinning. And even the NIV gets it right with cannot go on sinning. The habitual nature of this, the, the career of sin, is contained in the, the term itself that John uses, uh, which is to sin. It's a present infinitive. And that's, that's what again, what the original language says. It, it indicates to sin, that ongoing nature of it. So, once again, while occasional sin ought to be avoided and is dealt with through our advocate, Jesus, uh, 2 verse 1 talks about that, and we covered that uh, in the previous episode. The true Christian who's born of God does not practice sin. That's the emphasis here in chapter 3. The, the willful, continued practice of sin versus the occasional acts of sin. That's the key distinction for properly understanding this passage. So that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's well said. You well upholstered that subject, Nick. <laughs> but uh, that's why I like the word loyalty. It's easier to distinguish where one's loyalties lie. Uh, where do the false teachers' loyalties lie? Well, look at what they practice. Look at the way they live. One can occasionally sin, as you said, without breaking loyalty to Christ. But once loyalty has been broken and shifted to something else, well, then sin will abound. Uh, I think it's time for a grammar hammer. Hold on for it, Nick. Hold on. I have a... I went and I, I sacrificed and I got an anvil and I hauled it up to my office and now I'm ready. 
I've got I can't the, wait. the forge going, and here it is. You ready? Yes. <laughs> no expense spared on podcast on this uh, swordplay podcast. <laughs> That's right. It was a lot the of work. It was hammer. heavy. It was expensive, but we have a real anvil now. Ready for the grammar hammer, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, so we're going to take a peek here at the term righteousness that John uses uh, here a couple times. Verse 7, also in um, uh, verse 10 as well. Uh, whoever Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then um, the end of verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So let's let's break this term down here, and I, I think there are three dimensions to righteousness in Scripture, which can be applied to God and us. Um, first is covenantal faithfulness. God acts in faithfulness to His covenants, uh, the covenants that He makes with His people, and so uh, when He acts in accordance with His covenants, He is righteous. Or maybe better said, because He is righteous, He acts in accordance with His covenants. Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 5 is an example of this. Uh, I invite you to go read that text because you'll see righteousness and faithfulness are paralleled in that single verse. Uh, On the other hand, uh, when God's people keep covenant, they are a righteous people, as God says in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 25. So, Covenantal faithfulness, that's the first aspect of righteousness. Second is, and we may be the most familiar with this one, the law court imagery that is utilized for righteousness in Scripture. It is the imagery of a plaintiff who brings the accusation or the charge into the courtroom. The defendant is presenting his or her case for innocence or else throwing himself, herself before the mercy of the judge who is hearing the case. And so this is, again, a metaphor, but it's a metaphor also for covenant. So these are related. Uh, In Isaiah 16 and verse 5, in the context of steadfast love, chesed, which is uh, God's covenantal love, in that context comes one who establishes his throne to judge and seek justice with both faithfulness and righteousness. There it is again. Faithfulness, righteousness going together. Daniel 7, another Uh, example, brilliant example, of God, the Ancient of Days, is the judge. And he comes, takes a seat among the court, the nations are the plaintiff, Israel is the defendant for whom judgment is given. One more aspect of this is the eschatological, or that is the end times view of this. The future vindication, when God puts all things right again, and also the future vindication of his people, That could be in view also with righteousness. So three different dimensions to righteousness, covenantal faithfulness, the law court, and then the eschatological view. In this section of 1 John, John has those first two dimensions, it seems, in view when he talks about righteousness in relation to Christians. Practice covenantal faithfulness as demonstrative of your just standing before God in Christ, as God's covenant people. So I think that's what's in view here for uh, righteousness as it's being used here. But again, the larger scope of Scripture incorporates all can incorporate all three of those different dimensions. So, uh, how'd I do with that, Alex? Uh, Well done, Nick. That was uh, that was a good grammar hammer. We we really hammered. You really hammered that out there. 
<laughs> well done. All right, verses seven and eight. Uh, Nick, what were false teachers saying to deceive them? Right. Uh, so, little children, let no one deceive you. That's how the those two verses begin. <clears throat> and it's a familiar warning. We saw it back in 2 verse 26. Uh, and so perhaps the deception was to live sinful lives generally, right? Um, go on and practice sinning. And so they were attempting to deceive these little children, uh, these Christians. Uh, perhaps, uh, to use John's language, the temptation was to sin the sin of denying father and son, or to not confess Jesus Christ as having come to the flesh. That may be the sin as well. But the false teachers, they were busy at work promoting heresy, and so the warning, let no one deceive you. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, John says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Uh, this warning here is specifically to the little children, which I discussed last time as likely referring to those still young in the faith, perhaps even new converts. These, uh, quote, little children then are the ones who would be most vulnerable to false teaching. You know, especially at a time when you're first learning to deny the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, then these false teachers come along and they say, you don't have to deny those things at all. Well, John says, little children, we, we still have to practice righteousness to be righteous. Now, Nick, uh, verse 8, what does it mean to be of the devil? What are the works of the devil? Yeah, so one thing that's noteworthy for me is that John is careful not to say that people are begotten of the devil. Hmm. Uh, and Augustine puts it this way in one of his works, The devil made no one, he begot no one, he created no one. But whosoever imitates the devil is, as it were, a child of the devil through imitating, not through being born of him. So to be of the devil means a person belongs to or has aligned themselves with the devil. And whether that is a conscious effort or whether it's through just passive indifference, uh, John, I don't think, would make a distinction here. If you are not actively engaged in the good work of righteousness, then you must be someone else because there's no third category. There's no born of God versus of the devil versus of black black right whatever that would be some third category there's no <laughs> Did third you say category. dracula <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so so that's that's a bit about what john is saying here about um uh being born of god now in addition to this he talks about or being born of the devil now uh in addition to this he talks about the works of the devil uh these are his influences these are his power whereby he brings about sin in humans. All the, the sinful attitudes, all the evil actions of which he's the source, uh, this is, these seem to be the works of the devil that are in view here. So the cause and effect of sins are the works of the devil. This doesn't leave humans not responsible for their sin. They are, since they did what they wanted to do. They willed their desires. But the devil has his hand in the sins of people as well. Now, praise be to God, uh, John emphasizes this here, that it is the sinless Son of God who has taken away sins. Back there in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And so uh, he not only takes away sins, but he undid and undoes and is undoing the works of the devil in sin. Uh, 
And the word that John uses here for uh, destroy at the end of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, is uh, the term can also be translated as loose. And it, 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 it pictures, as it were, chains that had bound humanity. And Jesus unbinds. He dissolves the bonds. So Christ, in removing our sins, looses us from the bonds of sin. He takes away. He looses us from the penalty and the punishment of sin. All the evil, all the sin, every work of the devil is destroyed through Christ's finished work on the cross. Uh, so what does it mean to be of the devil? What are the works of the devil? Go, Alex. Well, yeah, I agree with what you were saying. That sounds good. Again, it is necessary also to go back and compare John's epistle with what is already known from his gospel. Uh, Jesus has a lengthy discussion in John chapter 8 that sounds very sim- uh, very similar, uh, very familiar to what we see here in 1 John chapter 3. Uh, there in John 8, Jesus confronted certain groups of Jews who were not willing to confront their own sin and thus be saved. Jesus calls them liars for that. He, he could see their hatred for him swelling into murderous intent. And Jesus called them out again, saying that because of their deeds, they are of their father, the devil. Uh, not because of their genes, but because of their deeds. Now, the works of the devil are all lie-based. They're based on lying, deception. In the Garden of Eden, he starts by questioning God's word. Uh, did God really say this? Then by denying God's word, no, that's not what will happen. And then finally replacing God's word with his own. Here's what will actually happen. This simple but effective three-part deception continues to be his game plan as he speaks lies from generation to generation. Uh, same game plan as these false teachers, actually. But what is the devil's desire then? Why? Why does he do this? What does he want? Jesus says he wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. The works of the devil continue to be carried out today through those who are of the devil, through their practice of lawlessness, through their deeds. But I see the destruction of those works taking place in three stages. First, the cross, where the penalty for sin is paid in the heavenly realms. Second, the Great Commission, where those who become Christians escape the wrath of God through his grace via the cross. Third, the resurrection, the day of judgment, where those who remain loyal to the devil are thrown into the lake of fire with their father, the devil, and his angels. So lots to think about here in uh, this whole, yeah, works of the devil thing. Any more thoughts there, Nick? Uh, Deeds, not genes. That was well said. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, why don't you talk to us for a second in verse 9 here, Nick. What is God's seed? You know, most commentators point to the parable of the soils where uh, Jesus says the word of God is the seed, uh, and that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have uh, their own parallel account of it. That's fair. Uh, In context, uh, I think that fits uh, based on uh, what John wrote back in, what was it, 2.14? The word of God abides in you, right? So there's your connection to the word, the apostolic word. But dig a bit deeper. You had, again, uh, from my historical reconstruction of this, you had these proto-Gnostics who were running around saying they'd been reborn, they'd been enlightened, and as a result, they had the divine nature. They had this divine seed remaining in them. Now, over against this heresy, John tells Christians who've been born again, uh, actually, 
you have God's seed, which could be his nature in them. Um, maybe a bit of an echo here from what Peter talks about, about uh, being partakers of the divine nature going on here with mm. John. Uh, there are older interpreters, though, you dig back into church history, uh, that have argued that God's seed is Christ. Uh, God's seed is the Holy Spirit. And so in this case, this is connected to the anointing that was discussed uh, back in uh, chapter 2, and you can see our previous episode for more on that. Uh, and there he similarly says that uh, the anointing abides in you. Smalley, in his commentary uh, for the Word Biblical Commentary series, writes, John is saying here that through the Word and Spirit, a new and growing covenant relationship is made possible between God in Christ and every regenerate disciple. Such a relationship should make sin an impossibility. So I like that. I think that's uh, in line here with what we're talking about with God's seed. What say you, Alex? Uh, I think that's correct, and I'm sure Smalley means makes the practice of sin an impossibility. Right. I believe the seed is Christ, Uh, Although this answer can be a bit nuanced, since there is the Word, which abides in us, 2.14, you mentioned that, but Christ is also called the Word of Life, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, The anointing abides in us via the Word and the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 27, but Christ sent the Spirit, as promised in John's Gospel, uh, chapters 14 through 16. So uh, all of these come together to create quite the divine macrame. Let's go back to John's Gospel for a minute which uh, does mention a seed, right? So Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat, that's a seed, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This Jesus said to foreshadow his impending death and resurrection. Jesus dies, but because of his death and resurrection, those who follow him will become a part of that abundant fruit born out of a single grain. Then the fruit which is produced has new seed inside itself, but that new seed is actually just the duplicate of that which it was born from. So Jesus presents himself as the original seed line of the new humanity, none like him before, and those like him now finding their origin in Christ. His seed abides in us, Christ Jesus himself as the spiritual template, his word within us, which says, let there be light, his spirit, which he breathes onto us, which gives us life and new birth. We have all of it. It's all ours, John says. Now verses 10 and 12. Nick, what makes someone a child of the devil, and how is Cain of the evil one? Yeah, John says it's evident, all right? It's it's manifest, it's clear uh, who the children of the devil are. So we can clearly know, we can clearly identify who are the children of the devil, those who are partakers in the nature of Satan, that is, those who are making a practice of sin. Their willful, continued rebellion against the Father— against the Son, their persistence in sin makes it evident who they are. So one's moral conduct makes spiritual lineage evident. And as far as Cain is concerned, it seems that it's, uh, it makes sense to view him as under the influence of Satan. Even as the, the whole world is under the influence of the devil, John will say that in chapter 5, verse 19, uh, that seems to be where Cain, uh, uh, where he made his abode, was under the influence of the devil. Uh, So that's what I see here. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I agree. And I would think uh, the context here points us towards who John has in mind. It's the false teachers that have been characterized in this whole letter. 
the identification of who these false teachers belong to is no mystery at all. However, there are times, I think, uh, now and then, when the children of the devil are never identified from the earthly realm. They say, Lord, Lord, they prophesy, they cast out demons, they do miracles. But from the heavenly realm, their true identity is unmistakable. Depart from me, Jesus says, you who practice lawlessness. Now, there is another idea that you might run into concerning Cain being of the evil one. Some are of the opinion that the serpent raped Eve, thus conceiving Cain in her womb. But then Adam also, quote, knew his wife shortly after that, thus conceiving Abel in her womb as well, resulting in a twin birth of first Cain and then Abel. These two sexual encounters are explained as the real events in the garden, using the forbidden fruit as a euphemism. Uh, this reconstruction is called the serpent seed theory, and there are different variations to it depending on who you ask. Um, but this scenario, however, I don't believe can be sustained by the text, and there are a few reasons for that. First, the text that people go to for ancient support of this theory is a targum. A targum is an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. Uh, it's almost like an expanded common running commentary as well. Uh, this particular targum is called Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, and this targum inserts additional material into Genesis in order to build this theory, to reconstruct this scenario. This targum, however, only dates to around the 7th to 8th century AD. That is far too late of a source to have already been in the mind of John's original audience in the 1st century. So the theory lacks ancient support. That's the first huge blow against it. Also, the text in Genesis presents Adam as knowing his wife after they had been removed from the garden, not while they were still in the garden. Thus, Adam knew his wife, and then she bore Cain, and then Abel, as the text plainly says in Genesis 4. So you lose continuity there between the uh, theory that uh, this uh, sexual encounter happened in the garden. Third, the writings of the Second Temple era, that's all those uh, things that we have from 400 BC to 100 AD. And even the writings of the early church, you know, from 100 AD to 300 AD, 400 AD even, those writings reveal a wide accepted belief in the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 where angels impregnate human women. Well, it would seem to me that if the serpent impregnated Eve, according to the serpent seed theory, and he's actually the father of Cain, then the material and the framework for that theory to thrive and to spread and to be accepted, man, that was available for centuries. And yet nobody floats that idea until 700 AD. Well, that means that no, the serpent was not the literal father of Cain or of anyone for that matter. So for once, I agree here with Augustine. <laughs> now verse 12 well Nick yeah thank well done what? dismantling that uh, that scenario there yeah and of course um, I didn't want to mention this because I wanted to stick with just the text just the logical fallacies of it uh, but the serpent seed theory is at times used by uh, those who, who spout anti-semitic rhetoric and of course mm. they have many more hoops to jump through to make that happen but uh, just to just to let you know these ideas are out there, and they become quite popular sometimes, depending on how uh, many views the YouTube videos get these days. So, uh, yeah, young kids and your YouTube videos and your technology <laughs> and computers and super theories and whatever. Okay, verse 12. Nick, why were Cain's deeds, that's, that's 
his offering, I think, uh, considered evil. Yeah, so the immediate context certainly links this with Cain slaughtering, and in fact, uh, the term there for murdered, very graphic. It's uh, he butchered his brother. Um, and so, so the context certainly links it to that uh, when he when he slaughtered his brother Abel. But the imperfect tense of the verb here uh, for uh, the word were his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. The imperfect tense points toward more than just the single incident of murder. It seems perhaps Cain's whole life was a moral train wreck. He lived a lifestyle of evil deeds. So Cain wasn't some innocent person whom God slighted for no reason when he came uh, presenting his offering. Cain had a a character problem and was of the devil, uh, as was demonstrated apparently by his wicked lifestyle. So even the offering he made was offered from a corrupt heart, which may shed further light on why Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock, that is, the best, whereas Cain simply brought of the fruit of the ground, not the best. So that's what I see here about Cain's deeds. Uh, What say you, Alex? You know, the Septuagint might add a little more clarity as well to Cain's offering. Uh, Genesis 4-7 in the Septuagint says, Have you not sinned? This is God talking to Cain. Have you not sinned if you offer rightly, but do not divide rightly? So Cain's offer was not divided rightly, which likely points to what you said. He didn't bring the best portion of the fruit of the land. Uh, Cain, I think, after that came to a critical turning point, a point which uh, would lead him in one trajectory or another. For good or for evil and I, you know i don't believe cain was born evil i don't think he was predestined to fall away i think that's why god himself says to him in that moment sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you but you must master it god is encouraging him exhorting him telling him to make this crucial decision of loyalty of choice of will but cain chose to have No loving loyalty for Yahweh, though. It says Cain was annoyed by Yahweh. Uh, You can almost imagine Cain saying, fine, you want the best to be offered to you? How about I slaughter Abel since you think he's the best? Can that be my offering then? Hmm. Does Cain say that? No, but his actions did. And then he lies about it, right? Then he lies because he is of his father, the devil, like his father. He is not of the devil by his genes, but by his deeds. Okay, Nick, verse 13, what world is John referring to, and why would uh, they, the world, hate us? Yeah, verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Uh, There in verse uh, 13, some connect this usage of world to to verse 15. And so the God-hating system, which is opposed to the things of God, is what is in view here. That's what John has in view here with the world that hates you. And such a system is under the control of the evil one anyway, so, yeah, we would expect that system under his control to hate us. And it's possible. And even if that explanation is granted, the system finds expression through unregenerate humanity. And also, I guess we could add in here, uh, all of the fallen angels and demons and minions of the devil as well. So, uh, but specifically toward humanity here, that seems... uh, the, the interpersonal nature of this seems to be in view here in particular for John. The world is filled with the descendants of Cain who ventilate their hatred of God upon his children. Indeed, our siblings around the world are being brutally butchered, savagely murdered for their faith in Christ. And 
it's no wonder. Don't be surprised. The world hates you, brothers. So uh, that's what I see here. What say you, Alex? I think you gave a good picture of the macro, but I think even in smaller contexts, the micro, those who see someone following Christ uh, feel guilty. They feel guilty themselves just by being around them, by being around the Christian. I've seen this in families where one person decides to follow Jesus, but the family doesn't buy it, right? They push the buttons of this new convert. They watch and they wait for them to make a mistake and to fall so that they can call their newfound faith a fraud and thus, you know, absolve themselves then of their own guilt because they don't want to change. They don't want to be different. They don't want to be compared to another standard. Good rubs evil in the wrong way. It always has. It always will. Uh, To quote an author that I uh, like a lot, his name is Fulton Sheen. And when he's describing the crucifixion, he says, the world will only allow the mediocre to live. It hates the very wicked like the thieves because they disturb its possessions and security. It also hates the divinely good. It hates our blessed Lord because he disturbs its conscience, its heart, and its evil desires. Fulton Sheen. Bishop Sheen, huh? That's right. Good old Sheen from the 50s, back when things were moral. Okay, verse 14. <laughs> verse 14. Uh, what does it mean to abide in death? Yeah, whoever does not love abides in death. The end of verse 14 says, literally the one not loving his siblings. That is the person failing to obey the command to love one another. And that person remains in a state of spiritual death. Uh, He or she has settled into it. In other words, he remains in darkness, uh, which is something that John has talked about earlier in this epistle, back in 2 verse 9. talks about it also in the gospel, um, in uh, chapter 12, verse 46. So that's a bit about what I see about abiding in death. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, quote, loving the brethren, which is synonymous with being in covenant community, as I explained last episode, uh, that results in life because God gives life to those who are in covenant with him and thus also to each other. Of course, this love must manifest itself. It takes practice, right? We have to practice loving one another, but that practice is preceded by commitment and thus a covenant. So abiding in death then is the opposite. It means you are not in covenant with either God or the covenant community. You abide in the darkness. And thus, to miss one of those is to miss both. You can't abide in the darkness and have covenant with the Father, but not the community, or the community and not the Father. They both go together. You either have them both, or you are abiding in darkness. And that's important for this audience because they have a large group of people who have left their community. And so there has been disruption. There has been a split. And John is coming along as the pastor to heal the wounds that uh, are left open here. So, Nick, verse 15. Why does hating your brother make you a murderer? Sounds extreme. What do you think? Yeah. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. A a throat-cutting brother butcherer. Uh, That's the force of this thing. You're a Cain who is serving the evil one. And uh, as I've defined before, love is not merely subjective, but it is objective as well. God so loved the world. That is, he desired to see the world conform to the image of Christ, and so he sent his Son into the world. Hatred then is either no desire or even indifference toward one's siblings becoming like Christ. There is no loftier aim to hinder or refuse to participate in that is tantamount to Cainish behavior. In addition, John may have his master's teaching ringing in his ears from the Sermon on the Mount, 
what Jesus teaches there in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 21 through 26, uh, where Jesus equated unresolved anger with a fellow believer with murder, or perhaps as a subset of murder, or perhaps as murder in the heart, or perhaps as the seed, which can germinate into full-blown murder, and on and on the different interpretations go. So as Jesus gave full exposition of the law for those who heard him that day, So John includes another wrinkle in the fabric of faith when it comes to murder. No love, passive indifference, even hatred would uh, equate with murder. So again, perhaps it's a subset of murder. Perhaps it's the seed of murder. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, Different ways of of viewing that. But uh, that's, again, what John is, the, the force of what John is saying here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I like the explanation of hatred being the seed of murder. Uh, But what is the seed of hatred? Well, a rejection of willingness to be in covenant with God. Well, why are they unwilling? Because they don't want to confront their sin. Or as Jesus says in John 8, 37, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So there is a trajectory here. There's a logical conclusion. One goes next to the other. Uh, Verse 16, Nick, what does it mean to lay down our lives for the brethren? Yeah, by this we know love, that he, that he, that's Christ, lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The laying down of our lives is paralleled with the deliberate self-sacrificial act of Christ in his atoning death on the cross for his people, hence the for us there. Such voluntary sacrifice, wherein the Lord takes our place, bears our sins, that is a supreme manifestation of the love of God. In fact, it serves as a model of love for all those who are children of God. We, uh, and we ought to lay down our lives, that's emphatic. We, uh, we, we, the the Christians, uh, ought, and the oughtness here, we've seen this before back in 2 verse 6, concerning the debt we owe to God to live like Christ. And so we also owe our brethren the debt of love. Paul talks about that in Romans 13 and verse 8. There's an assignment attached to it. There's, there's an obligation. And uh, you can see 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15 for a bit more on that. Listen, while, while we are laying down our lives, uh, we're called to do that, but we need to recognize that it is categorically different than when Christ laid down his life. Our When Christ laid down his life, it had... Uh, infinite atoning value. When we lay down our lives, there's no atoning value like that of Christ. But while that may be true, it is still a supreme proof of our love for the brethren. Such self-sacrificial giving is an example for believers to imitate, and that seems to be why John plugs that in here and connects it to the gospel. Now, verses 17 and 18 are actually going to provide the application for this. And what does it look like? Well, it is meeting the real needs of fellow believers. It is a readiness to share with siblings in need, not to love merely in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. So uh, that's a bit about what it means to lay down our lives for the brethren as I see it. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. And uh, I will emphasize what you said. We do not accomplish atonement. But you know what we do accomplish? Uh, We accomplish sanctification when we lay down our lives for our brothers, when we share with readiness with our siblings in need, are imitating the master in giving and sacrifice that helps to shape and mold us as image bearers of God. Now, of course, this process includes God, but it also includes our practice, our will, our initiative to do these things. 
And then by those things, we are transformed more into the likeness of Christ. This sanctification helps us to see God. I think see God now to an extent, but also will cause us to see Christ as he is at the resurrection and will accomplish the purpose of the new uh, commandment in the meantime while we do this now, which Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there is an evangelistic uh, outcome. Jesus promises to those who love one another. Verses 19 through 20, Nick, how do we assure our hearts before God, and how is God greater than our heart? So uh, my English standard, <coughs> excuse me, my English standard <coughs> says, <coughs> Frog in your throat. <laughs> ah. Water break. Take two. All right, there we go. My English standard says, reassure our heart before him. Uh, Reassure our heart. That seems to be an idiom, literally, to convince the heart, to exhibit confidence and assurance in a situation which might otherwise cause dismay or fear. Uh, Before him, a very interesting language here. It seems to denote the presence of God. Now, John uses the future tense here. It's not uh, immediately evident in the uh, in the English, although uh, it does say here, by this, we shall know, that's retained, but also we will reassure our hearts. That's, uh, that's Both of these are the future tense, and that seems to indicate that John is postulating a hypothetical. If there arises a time when doubts creep in and one begins to question if they are of the truth, their heart condemning them, they can assure or reassure their heart that they are of the truth. And John uses courtroom language. Condemn, that's uh, definitely courtroom language. But also, we've already seen back in verse 6, verse 10, about righteousness and, and righteous, uh, which is justification language, which is also courtroom language. So the judgment uh, and the condemnation of the heart seems connected with one's meeting the real needs of others. Perhaps the child of God, one of the truth has done good deeds, is doing good deeds, but doubts begin to creep in, but questions begin to pop up. Is it enough? And this is a common question I've, I've faced from members of the church, and I always point to the woman who anointed Jesus the night before his crucifixion. Jesus points out she has done what she could in Mark chapter 14 and verse 8. If our sacrifice is willing, if it is sacrificial, if it is intentional, if it is habitual, While our heart may judge us guilty, John is saying, there's a greater judge. God's greatness. That's what he points to uh, here in verse 20. God is greater than our heart. That is a key attribute for God. There is no greater being than God. So the heart may accuse, but God is the Supreme Court. He overrules the heart. When we are most aware of our shortcomings, especially in regards to God's righteous standard, The love of God, as expressed in the voluntary, substitutionary death of Christ for us, abides in us. God is greater, and only God can give us that clean conscience that we need. And as we talked about in chapter 1, he does it by the blood of Christ. You can also see Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 for more on that. So uh, that's what I see going on here in these verses. Alex, what do you think? I think that's right. Uh, For me, it helps to remember what our hearts are being assured of. Uh, The question, is it enough? 
will always be answered in the negative if you're trying to accomplish your own atonement. Like, can I make up for my sin? Can I create enough good deeds to balance out my sins, to earn forgiveness and salvation? Well, no, no. Christ accomplished your atonement. That's the good news. But if we ask, is it enough regarding our sanctification, right? Our spiritual growth, our maturity, our transformation into the image of Christ. John says, ah, for that, keep loving one another in deed and in truth. And that will result in a growth in confidence, confidence and assurance for your heart, which comes from Christian maturity, Christian maturity as a result of service and sacrifice. God knows all things. Well, Nick, verse 20, uh, what does that mean then? Does God know all things? You know, we've, we've discussed uh, God's, it was specifically about his foreknowledge, but I, I think it encapsulates also the discussion about God's omniscience. We've discussed this before, and I invite our listeners to go dig into the archives, episode 76 on First Peter chapter 1. In fact, both of us made reference to this verse uh, here, First John 3 and verse 20, as support for our respective positions. I affirm that God knows everything, knows all things. Uh, while you deny that God knows all things, uh, and and you'll explain what you mean by that in a few moments. So I'm grateful to dig deeper into this verse. Um, in your explanation, you go back and you listen to it. Uh, you mentioned that 1 John 3 and verse 20 is limited to our heart. God knows all things concerning our hearts. However, a closer look at the text itself I don't think sustains this conclusion. First, John wrote all things, panta, in the original, not all things concerning our hearts. And I think if John had meant God knows all things concerning our hearts, there's a way to write that, either by having the adjective all agree with the noun, which the noun here is hearts, uh, or it's actually a, a singular uh, here, uh, and either he would utilize the term for that's translated here, all things, either as pasai or as pasas, that's the feminine uh, form, uh, and uh, so, he, again, there's a way of saying it in a certain way if he meant only all things pertaining to our heart. Also, he could have said, you know, concerning our hearts, uh, peri, tes, cardias, hemon. Uh, again, there's a way of saying it in the original, but he doesn't. Uh, John writes all things, and linguistically, that makes what God knows much more comprehensive than just our hearts. It is a gnomic truth which is applicable to the situation into which John is writing. Of course, of course God knows our hearts because he knows all things. Uh, hearts would include that. They'd be in the scope of all things. And so this is an affirmation of God's greatness by an appeal to God's omniscience, knowing all things which he created and which he sustains by his power. In addition, he knows, uh, let's say, present tense verb that affirms God's comprehensive knowledge of all things, which he sustains and upholds, uh, even as he sustains and upholds all things, as we're told in Hebrews 1, verse 3, also Colossians 1, verse 17. And so due to his moment-by-moment -moment sustaining power, where, whereby all things hold together, he then knows all things that are preserved by his sustaining power, which, I mean, when you start thinking about it, even the sinner in his sinning is sustained, held together, and even known to God. Specific to this context, even the believer whose heart is condemning him or her, uh, that is not only sustained and upheld, uh, held together by God, 
but he knows it. If something, by the way, were not sustained by him, it would not exist because everything is dependent upon God for its existence. So this truth, he knows all things, also has bearing upon one's prayer life, uh, as we'll see when we uh, dig into verse 22 a bit deeper. Uh, But I'll just say here at this point, um, Jesus taught, your father knows what you need before you ask him over in, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. And again, John no doubt has his teacher's uh, teaching ringing in his ear. The Father's full, even future knowledge of what we need. Uh, And so, uh, therefore, whatever we ask, we receive from him, since he knows all things, even the things we need before asking. Uh, One more thing here, verse 19, demonstrates how this truth transcends time by using the future tense. And I've talked about that. Uh, We shall know. And then we will reassure our hearts. John anticipates a time when a Christian may have a crisis of conscience, crisis of faith, at some future point. How will one know that they're of the truth? How will their heart be reassured? What truth triumphs over our condemning hearts? Well, John highlights two transcendent attributes of God, the greatness of God and God's omniscience. And what is true, what has been true of God in the past, and what is true now of God in the present, will be true of God then. Uh, He does not change. So, does God know all things? I affirm. Alex, what do say you? Does God know all things? Yeah, I think the crux of the issue is to uh, define what John means here by all things. Uh, John has already mentioned all things in his letter in reference to the Christian in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, which says, His anointing teaches you about all things. That's that word you mentioned, panta. So by your logic, since John didn't write it another way when he could have, it must mean that the Christians are now omniscient. Well, of course, that's not true. We know all things concerning the gospel, all things necessary to walk in the light. So all things is limited to the topic at hand. Now, I affirm a lot of the things that you affirm. I affirm that God holds all things together by his power. But I see that as a metaphysical statement. It doesn't tell us how much he knows or doesn't know. So I don't follow the argument there. It seems like a non sequitur. But you mentioned prayer, and that is important. I also affirm that the Father knows what we need before we ask him. Uh, But the passage uh, you mentioned doesn't really develop anything to the extent of what we would call omniscience. The Father knows our needs, generally speaking, of course, which goes along with what Jesus will say multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount concerning food and clothing. And those were the primary concerns of his audience, food and clothing. But the Father also knows that we need... uh, things beyond food and clothing. We need holiness. We need forgiveness. We need deliverance from evil, and thus the Lord's Prayer. These are simple examples, um, and I admit that even beyond this, God knows much more than the things concerning our human needs, uh, especially as we have a covenant relationship with him. But I don't believe that that passage there affirms omniscience, at least uh, omniscience defined in the in the traditional sense. I also do affirm, though, God's greatness. It's mentioned here in 1 John 3.20. Uh, I believe that he does not change, but I believe it. He, he does not change in his character, who he is. God does sometimes change his mind. Uh, but when he does that, when he changes his mind, it's consistent with his character, like when he decides to show mercy instead of judgment. So what I believe is that God knows uh, we can put it this way. He knows all knowable things. And that 
maybe doesn't help clear things up because then you have to go into, well, what are knowable things? But here's the bottom line for me. He definitely knows more than any created thing. But what that means is that sometimes God doesn't know something because it's not really knowable at that time. Like, you know, what will someone choose to do in the future? Well, sometimes God knows what someone will do, but sometimes he doesn't. When God, for example, led the Israelites out of Egypt, he didn't know for sure if the Israelites would turn back. So he brought them the long way out so that they couldn't turn back. That's Exodus 14, verse 17. When God came down uh, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he wanted to verify that what they had done uh, was entirely according to the outcry which came before him. And then he says, quote, and if not, I will know. It's Genesis 18, 20, verse 21. So saying that God knows everything instantly for all time, even the future, it just doesn't work with the narrative given to us in the Bible. And there are many more examples of this kind of thing, right? I don't want to go on and on and on. But I maintain that John wants the reader here in 1 John 3 to understand that God knows all things concerning the human heart and the human condition. In his judgment, God's judgment of us, of who we are in Christ, it is greater than the judgment that our own hearts will have against us at times. That's what I maintain and affirm here in 1 John 3. So uh, I, I didn't really hear an answer to the linguistic argument that I presented concerning the disagreement between the noun there for heart, which is uh, actually a, a singular feminine uh, noun, and the adjective panta, which is plural and neuter. And the basic rules of grammar for Greek would be that uh, if John were talking about um, all hearts, that the adjective would agree with the noun. And in fact, uh, he does do that elsewhere in his writing where the adjective all, specifically pas, will agree with the noun that it is describing. He does this in Revelation 1 verse 7, for example, about all the tribes. Uh, the, the phrase is in agreement, but that you don't have that here uh, with, um, with pas, panta, and cardias. Um, so that was one thing I noticed uh, in your reply. Yeah, but then also I did reply to that. I did yeah. reply to that. Which was? He does the same thing in chapter two, verse twenty-seven. Well, wait, not so fast there, because uh, so you, you're you're confusing. I think there's no disagree. There's there's no agreement here in three verse twenty in the actual language. All right, so so that's the linguistic connection, uh, and and as far as two verse twenty-seven. There's, that's, a, that's a category error in terms of um, humans are not God. And the subject, the subject of being taught all things is you, the, the people, the Christians there. So by definition, they, all things would not be all things that God knows, but it would be delimited. And we can talk about exactly how far down the limitation goes, but uh, that's what I would say is that's a category error, error to conflate 2 verse 27 with 3 verse 20. But okay. again, the, the noun does not agree with the adjective in number or in uh, gender. Okay, so, yeah, you're trying to make the grammatical argument. Here's the thing about grammatical arguments. Grammatical rules are not always followed in the scriptures. They're broken, and context always trumps Greek. And so, to me, you're overcomplicating it way too much. It's not a category error when you look at 227. There's a pattern. John uses the phrase, all things. 
And it doesn't always mean all things ever, forever, for all time, all things ever. It's like the spirit comes down, Jesus promises, and will teach the apostles all things. But he doesn't say he'll teach them about mechanics and he'll teach them about combustion engines. It's like, no, it's all things related to the topic at hand. It's all things related to the gospel. This is a pattern John uses in his gospel and his epistle. And so you can make the grammatical argument as much as you want, but I just don't think it's going to stick. I just don't think it's going to make sense. It's, it's overly complicated when there is a much simpler explanation, which Occam's razor really kind of demands to go with the simpler explanation. The Occam's razor hermeneutic. <laughs> That's right. Good swordplay. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I love you, brother. I love you. I love you, too. It's a good right. conversation. It is, it is. Okay, verses 21 through 22. We're going to move on now. we got a little bit left here. How does John relate the condition of our heart, then, to our prayer life? Yeah, let me get there. All right, there we go. All right, uh, so our heart does not condemn us, and that's uh, because of the argument that he made, uh, as we just discussed in verses 19 and 20. So the uncondemned heart makes its requests with boldness before God. In fact, John describes the relationship between the believer and, and God as the same that he used to describe the word or life and God. Uh, In both the beginning of the the gospel, uh, the word was with God. It was prostontheon. We saw back in chapter 1 of the beginning of this epistle about the the word was with God, uh, the the life that was with God. Uh, And again, that was prostontheon. And so here he uses the same Greek phrase, proston theon, for the relationship between believers and God. Wow, no closer relationship can be conceived. This is also related to uh, answered prayer. We keep on asking and we keep on receiving. That's the force of the present tense there. From him, it means from God. God always answers the prayers of his children. But necessary conditions for answered prayer are... Uh, the uncondemned heart, which we get from uh, God, who is greater than our hearts, and sustained obedience to God, doing what pleases him. That's what he says there at the end of verse 22. We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. One who rejects the commandments of God, one who is doing what is displeasing before God, should not expect his prayers to be answered, let alone heard. And so that's how I see John connecting our hearts and our prayer lives here. What do you think, Alex? I think we must uh, go back to what John says will give our hearts assurance in the first place. It's by loving each other in deed and truth. If our love is put into action, then it follows that our heart becomes more confident before God, that we really are doing his will. Therefore, when we come before him in prayer, we will receive what we ask because it's in the context of doing his will by loving each other in deed and truth. We receive then what we ask because we're asking for the things that will help us to love each other better. We're not asking God to give us the lust of our flesh and eyes and pride. We're asking God to give us what we can lay down and sacrifice. And to these requests, God says, yes, these are the requests that become, I think, more natural as our hearts are transformed and gaining this confidence and this assurance as we walk in the light. Verse 23. So I shouldn't be asking for the solid gold Cadillac? Well, no, I don't think so, Nick, unless you're going <laughs> to uh, have it melted down and given to the poor, right? You're going to lay it down. You're going to sacrifice it. <laughs> there we go. Nice. All right. Verse 23. What does it mean to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? 
Yeah, so what's interesting here for the, the, the term believe uh, there in verse 23, we believe in uh, the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a verb, and the manuscript evidence is actually divided here. Uh, did John write an aorist tense verb, or did he write a present tense verb? Um, the aorist is followed by most of the critical um, uh, Greek New Testaments. And that would, of course, denote the initial moment that one put their faith in Christ. That's what the aorist tense indicates is a snapshot event in the past. So the initial moment when you put your faith in the name, or you began to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, whereas, on the other hand, the present tense would be the continued faith and the continued belief in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm inclined to follow the the present tense reading, uh, even though that kind of goes against all the critical Greek New Testaments. But I say that because, number one, the, the, the manuscript evidence is actually overwhelming in support of the present tense. I went back and looked at my Greek apparatus, and let's see, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Bizet, as well as a number of other early Greek manuscripts, all have the present tense, whereas only uh, Vaticanus and then the majority text uh, have the, uh, the, the aorist tense. And by the way, the difference is literally one letter. Is it, uh, uh, it pistusomen or pistuomen? And uh, it's, it's literally comes down to just one letter, sigma in the original, which corresponds to our letter S. So the, the manuscript evidence, I am persuaded, is overwhelmingly in support of the present tense. But then also the emphasis in John, as we've seen, is on the habitual practice of continuing in faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think this is consistent with John's usage of the verb believe throughout the rest of his epistle. He either uses the present tense or the perfect tense. 4 verse 1, verse 16, 5 verse 1, verse 5, three times in verse uh, 10 of chapter 5, and then again in verse 13. Indeed, in the gospel, the aorist tense is used of those who don't continue to believe, and in fact, argue with Jesus. In chapter 8 and verse 30, he talks to those who believed in him, and he says, you know, if... if uh, uh, you uh, continue my word, you truly be my disciples, and uh, you won't be in slavery anymore. And they're like, slaves? Rah! And they get all mad at Jesus and <laughs> start arguing. Uh, so coupled with the present tense that is used for love one another, that's also here as we come back to 1 John 3.23, that is a present tense verb, the ongoing action of love, the ongoing action of faith seems reasonable in, uh, in this particular reading. Now, let's talk about the phrase, the name of his son Jesus Christ. That really does have kind of a creedal flavor to it, uh, a belief statement type flavor to it. The name involves the entire nature of the person, and so the full nature of Christ is in view. Again, one must agree with the full-orbed historical manifestation of the Son and continue in that belief. In addition, loving fellow believers indicates that creedal confession disconnected from a lived faith is foreign to Christianity. The fancy way of saying it, orthodoxy must be accompanied by orthopraxy. Right doctrine must be accompanied by right practice. And what is particularly interesting here is that faith in the name of his son is his command. It's the command of God. How can God command belief? Uh, well, for one, he's God, right? He can command everything and anything he wants. But uh, I believe, Alex, you have some more light to shed on not only that question, but the 
question as it stands about believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I think you're on the right track to the uh, continued belief is what John has in mind. So let's start with what John means by belief. I'm convinced that he means uh, to use belief as a uh, statement of continued loyalty. So God can command loyalty, right? John chapter 6, verses 66 says, As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him. So you see that lacking of continuance in some of his disciples. Uh, John eleven fifteen, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But hold on a second. His, his apostles, they do believe. They, they continue to follow him. But he is referring to they had to keep on believing. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing there in that verse is present active. In other words, you have to keep on believing. Interestingly, John never says the word faith in his gospel, but he uses the term belief. And that communicates what Paul says in his epistles about faith. So John uses the word belief like the way Paul uses the word faith. It's a continued loyalty. But let's look now, secondly, at the, um, the, the term name. What does it mean to believe in the name? In our episode on the angel of the Lord, we noted how the Old Testament uses the term name at times to denote the presence of Yahweh. The angel of, of the Lord is said to have Yahweh's name in him. Exodus 23, verse 21. Uh, in the temple, Yahweh says, I'll put my name. That's his presence uh, in the temple. So again, go back and see the archives for Angel of the Lord. If the name was the visible manifestation of Yahweh in the Old Testament through the Angel of the Lord, then the name is now the visible manifestation of Yahweh in the New Testament through Jesus. Uh, the Angel of the Lord was Yahweh looking like a man, but Jesus is Yahweh actually becoming a man. So to believe in his name is to loyally follow the one who has revealed the Father, Father, that's the Son of God, the Word in human flesh, Jesus Christ. That's what it means. <laughs> nice. Okay, verse 24. Nick, what is the Spirit given to us? Does the Spirit abide in us? So the Spirit given is, I'm persuaded, the Holy Spirit. God, the Father, gave us the Holy Spirit when we were converted. And I think that's indicated by the tense that's used there. Again, the Aorist tense. Uh, and uh, when it comes to the, the Spirit abiding in us, yes, the, the Holy Spirit abides in us. Uh, he is the one who enables us to do the things John's been writing about, love our siblings as we ought, meet the needs of fellow believers, reassure our hearts before him, continue in faith in the name, keep God's commandments, abide in God and God in us. So, uh, yes, the, 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 the Holy Spirit has taken up his abode in Christians. What say you, Alex? Mm -hmm. Yep, I mentioned this abiding language last episode. It ties back to John's Gospel, chapter 14 and 15, and I proposed that whenever the abiding is going upward, it denotes being under another's authority, and when the abiding is going downward, it denotes being empowered by that higher authority. So we abide in Christ, and Christ abides in the Father, and there you have the chain of authority. But the Father abides in the Son, and the Son abides in us, and the Spirit abides in us. And so you have there the chain of empowerment from which one can uh, draw from to do what they're tasked to do. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church, and the church, both corporate and individual, can do what they are tasked to do because of that empowerment. We can walk in the light. We're not under-resourced in this walk, in this journey that we're on. So 
why then, Nick, does having the Spirit confirm that God abides in us? Well, the Holy Spirit himself is the third person of the Godhead. So to have the Spirit in us, shall we say, abiding in us, uh, is to have God himself abiding in us. And so that's the, the confirmation there. What do you think? I think that's right, yeah. And if we're doing God's will, if we do what God wills, then it shows that we are following the empowering of the Spirit given to us by God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? We can we not do God's will with the Spirit uh, trying to guide us to do otherwise. But when we do God's will, it shows that we're following that Spirit empowering us. These false teachers, they do not follow the Spirit from God. They follow a different Spirit, which is not from God. And we'll see that in the beginning of chapter 4. Last question, Nick. What are all the things that John says abides in us? There's a bunch of them now. Are each of these, are they distinct things? Are they synonymous? Are we supposed to see them as the same thing? What's going on? Yeah, John's, John's mentioned several things. The Word of God, back in 2 verse 14. What you've heard from the beginning in 2 verse 24. The anointing in 2 verse 27. God's seed, as we saw in this chapter earlier, 3 verse 9. By implication... Uh, eternal life, assuming you that we love one another, back in 3, verse 15. God himself, yeah, that's mentioned, uh, he's mentioned multiple times, 324, 4, verse 12, 4, verse 16. Uh, did, did I miss any? Only one. Also, the love of God abides in us, chapter 3, verse ah, 17, good. which must be manifested by good deeds. So that's technically seven things that abide in us. The word of God, what we heard from the beginning, the anointing, God's seed, eternal life, the love of God, and God himself. Now, maybe this is a coincidence, and it very well could be, but John's gospel has many sets of seven throughout the narrative, which goes back to John's prologue in the story of a new creation, a new humanity, a new genesis. So these seven things abiding in us have significant uh, overlap in, in meaning, but again, John uses, I think, that redundancy to emphasize his points. And the point here, I think, is if all of these things abide in us, then there's nothing that abides in the false teachers that could ever be better than what we already have. And there's the temptation, right? There's the serpent saying, no, you should you should do this other thing. You should find this uh, other, other satisfaction, this other result. It's like, ah, you don't need that, though. You already have everything that is the best you could ever have by all of these things abiding in you. There's nothing, there's nothing you could trade up for. You have reached the pinnacle. You are the enlightened one. You are the holy people of God. And that's the end of chapter 3. Any final thoughts, Nick? Uh, no, I think we've, we've covered everything in there. That's right. <laughs> and then some. That's right. <laughs> Extra long sword play. Overtime. But we know our audience. They are diligent listeners. So, uh, Nick, any final? That's right, deluxe. Any final notes here, uh, instructions for the audience? Yeah, so uh, feel free. Uh, The the podcast is now on several major streaming platforms, not only Apple Podcasts, but now also in Amazon Music, Google Music, and Spotify. And so go into each of those places uh, respectively and leave a review. Uh, That'll help boost the podcast in those respective places. But also, if you leave a written review, we'll read it here on air, and you will be entered into a grand prize giveaway for some swordplay swag as well. That's right. 
Um, also, if you have questions, feel free to send those in. We will answer them here on the podcast. You can text those in to area code 316-24-SWORD. That is 316-247-9673. Again, send in those questions via text. We'll answer them online. But they can also email them in, right, Alex? That's right. Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Last day of the month for the uh, Swordplay Swagger contest. We'll do another one next month. So continue to leave reviews, share the podcast, and thank you for tuning in to a, another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture. Yeah.